Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please bookmark ACONS, A-A-C-O-N-S dot substack dot com. That's where you'll find links to this podcast, all of our social media platforms, our commentary, uh, everything about ACONS that you would want to know. You'll find it at acons.substack.com, including ways to sustain and support our podcast and our work. It's my pleasure today to introduce Delano Squires. Delano Squires is a research fellow in the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. He's also a contributor to Blaze Media as well as Blaze TV's Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Uh, Delano has been published by Newsweek, The American Conservative, The Federalist, The Institute for Family Studies, Black and Married with Kids, The Root, and The Griot. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, One of the very cool things about your bio is that you are a homeschooling dad. I am a homeschooling mother, raised all three of my kids, homeschooled all three of them. All three of them are done. So uh, (laughs) that has been a blessing. But we lived in blue California Mm. in the Bay Area. There was no way I was putting my children in school in California, not as a Christian conservative family. So uh, what have been some of the blessings for you as a homeschooling dad, raising your kids in that way? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, um, I never thought that I'd be a homeschooling dad. Uh, I grew up in New York City, went to public schools all but for two years of my sort of formal K-12 education. Um, My wife grew up in Houston, again, mainly went to public schools. And um, I I remember when she first said she, you know, she would want to put our future children in private school. I pushed back on that. I said, you know, I grew up in New York and um, public schools help make me street smart and I want the kids to be the same way. But then I just started to see how much education and particularly public education has changed over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and as I grew in my faith and I grew more mature and we made the decision for her to come home after our third child was born. Um, you know, I think God sort of placed it on my heart that this is, this is something you all should at least this is something that we we should consider. And, and I heard, um, I don't know if it was a sermon or, or an address by Pastor Vody Bakum, where he talked about home education. And he talked about how so the, the number of, of Christian parents who send their kids to government schools and then are surprised when their children reject the faith that they were raised in. Um, those are all things that sort of soften my heart to, to homeschooling. And as we learn more, um, and sort of waded into it with our oldest child, you know, my wife took to her new role immediately. Uh, and now our home is full of curricular resources, <laughs> yeah. books. Every time she goes to the thrift store, she brings back two and three bags of books. And I mean, heart, she has Hardy Boys books and our oldest yes. son is four. So, um, <laughs> 
So, yeah, so it's one of those things where it, it was a mix of things. And again, largely spiritual maturity on our part, yes. particularly on my part. But then part of it, we had our daughter in um, a public charter school when we were living in D.C. Um, she was in pre-K three because in D.C. Uh, preschool starts at three years old. Mm-hmm. And the school was really good about, you know, sending home homework, helping the kids work on handwriting, you know, number, letter, color, recognition, that type of thing. A lot of it she had already known. But come, this was February 2020, uh, and the school put up, they had a billboard or like a chalkboard, you know, as you were entering the school, and it had Black Lives Matter and had the pictures of like Michael Brown and, um, you know, a number of other people, Trayvon Martin. And I emailed the principal and asked, you know, what's the school's position on Black Lives Matter? Because I, I knew what the organization stood for in terms of their guiding principles. And he never responded. And I emailed again and he never responded. And I told my wife, well, she's not definitely not going back there next year. So we looked at a classical Christian school um, in Maryland. And the only reason we didn't send our kids there was because COVID hit and we weren't about to pay somebody $10,000 a year so that our four-year-old could you know, stand behind the screen. So it was, so part of it was, was that, you know, sort of the logistical and the practical piece. But again, a big part of it was sort of spiritual spiritual maturity, um, particularly on, on my part. That's so interesting because that almost exactly mirrors the conversation my husband and I had when our oldest, uh, I think I was like four and a half months along with him. Mm. And uh, my background had been in early childhood education. I was a childhood, okay. early childhood educator. So, I mean, I was surrounded by, you know, uh, developmentally appropriate practice, all of that kind of stuff. So for the, for me to think about educating, home educating our children was kind of an outlier, really, because it was like all of my experience, all of my practice was in early childhood education but like you said it has it, it had its genesis really in scripture as I learned more of the word and began to see how that uh, impacted my world and my worldview about things you know growing up and we'll talk a little bit about this um, I also grew up in a liberal household uh, and the only sin was to uh, root for the Dodgers and that's an interesting thing right now because they were the dirty Dodgers because I was from San Francisco as a big rivalry um, and they're still the dirty Dodgers so I'm saying it uh, and uh, to root anything uh, to vote anything other than a straight Democrat ticket so um, it was interesting, my evolution as I became a Christian to see in the scriptures, I was always pro-life. Um, that was never an issue, but how my uh, priorities became more aligned. And so for us to uh, consider homeschooling was just this really kind of odd thing. Um, but it really, I believe, saved my kids' lives. They are now almost 25, 21, almost 22 and 20. Hmm. Um, and so you know, as we were leaving California, uh, moving to my new home state of Texas, um, you know, a lot of the friends that they grew up with were getting involved in all of these top surgeries and the trans wow. movement and all of wow. this kind of stuff. And I just said, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about having invested all this time in their homeschooling education, their spiritual education. I mean, they were all raised in the church uh, and then to 
sort of abandon the rest of the process up to them. And I yeah. felt like we needed to stack the deck a little bit, get them involved uh, with people of like faith, even though in the church, I mean, in California, it was scarce pickings because the, people's minds were not aligned to, mm -hmm. to scripture. So getting them out here in Texas where there are a lot of young people their age that are, you know, into God and country and know what bathroom to use and those kinds of mm -hmm. things, uh, you know, being able to have a pool of people to select a godly mate from and perpetuate all yes. of the legacy that we've invested yes. in them. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think about these things in the same way. Obviously I'm in a different stage of the process our kids are seven, four, and then we have two three-year-olds. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about some of the same things. And again, I'm, I'm glad uh, I came across people like Vody Bakum, who, you know, and, and that particular sermon is called uh, Children of Caesar. And he said something to the effect of when, when you, as a <laughs> Christian parent, when you send your children away to wrong. Caesar to be educated, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be surprised when they come back acting like Romans. Yep. Um, and and he, he talked about he, he was basing that on Luke 640, which says yes. a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And I think a lot of parents, including Christian parents, yeah. we have all grown up in this culture that says, um, yes, we're parents, but the job of raising and training and shepherding and discipling our children should be outsourced primarily to the, 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 public school or more, more accurately, the government school. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And there may have been a time, and, and I can even say from my own upbringing, when, you know, the schoolhouse was largely apolitical, but we don't live in that time anymore. No, we don't. Um, so when you send your, your kid to a school and the people who are discipling them for 10 hours a day are, you know, I don't know a single gal, 24 years old, blue hair, septum ring, uh, you know, gone through Teach for America. She has no children of her own, doesn't own any property, has no real stake in that community, but she has a head full of theories about how the world should be and uh, about all the isms and the, and the phobias. And that is all, she, so your child comes into the classroom, <clears throat> excuse me, they have, pride flags and BLM flags and all sorts of other, you know, doctrines that are being taught. And this is the person that has access to your child for 10 hours a day. And you as a Christian parent say, oh, well, I, well, I can, I can teach them otherwise. So you have them for about maybe 90 minutes before school, as they're getting up, they're eating breakfast, watching cartoons, and maybe two hours after school, as they do that, you know, um, extensive sort of debrief of how the day went. Oh, what did you learn in school today, Jimmy? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So, okay, wow. Okay, good talk. So parents who think that the, the few hours we have with our children and then, you know, add on some time, you know, Sunday school and during the sermon are going to erase the approximately 14,400 yeah. hours that the, the teachers and administrators, ideologues oftentimes have, you know, in terms of access to our children, to me are fooling themselves. And, and this, is, this is how you get parents who are confused when the child that they've yes. raised since birth and they've had in Sunday school 
and they did the Easter plays and they were in vacation Bible school and they did all the things with, with that child goes off. And after one semester on a college campus comes back a totally different person, hating everything that you poured into them from the time that they were a baby. It's because we allow them to be discipled by someone else and they speak, act and behave just like their teachers. Uh, so I think to your point, Christian parents need to reclaim our God-given authority to raise and train and disciple our children. Because, you know, I see education as equal parts, scholarship and discipleship, right? Academic mastery and moral formation. So any parent going into any school should ask yourself, do I want these people forming my children's morals? And the first question you should ask is, what, what is their worldview what are they what is what is their moral compass attuned to what is their true north um and if and if there is not overlap and synergy between your values as a parent any parent but particularly we're talking about christian parents particularly black christian parents and the school that you're selecting you need to move on to another institution so that that's that would be my advice to anyone who's considering how to educate their child and and i love the point you made towards the end and i've actually been talking to people, you know, both inside Heritage and friends and family. I predict that in 20 years, um, quasi-arranged marriage is going to be a real and tangible social phenomenon in this country. Now, I'm not saying that a parent is going to say, Linda, this is your husband, John, Mm -hmm. this is your wife. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Part of the reason I'm not saying that is because children in the West and in this country don't respect their parents enough to actually Mm -hmm. obey them. We don't use words like obedience when it comes to raising children anymore. What I am saying is that I think parents are going to actively take um, a more affirmative hand in creating the type of environment in which they maximize the amount of time that they spend around families with similar values. Yes. With, with the hope that naturally and organically their children will, uh, and as early as possible, begin to pair up, couple up and marry children from other families that share the same worldview and the same set of values uh, to your point to, to sort of propagate you know, this spiritual treasure unto the generations. I do think that that's going to be a real thing in the next 20 years, because I certainly, I have two sons and two daughters. I do not want anyone (sighs) intertwining into my family tree who's not sure which sex has the babies. I don't don't care how good she looks. I don't care how much money he makes. If, if If they are not solid on these Genesis issues, what is a man? What is a woman? What is a life? What is a marriage? Uh, what is wrong with the world? I'm I'm not interested. So and I and I'll be very clear with my children when 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 that time comes. You know, it's so funny because my 20 year old said to me, he said, you know, mom, I I actually worry about my kids. Kids he doesn't mm. even have yet. He doesn't have a girlfriend. Mm. Maybe I outed him. I, I'm sorry, but I'm just saying he doesn't have a girlfriend right now, uh, and he's worried about these future kids. Because mm-hmm. that's how dire it looks to this generation that's been raised right mm. with the right principles. You know, I was looking, I, I'm not into TikTok, but mm-hmm. 
I saw a video last night. I did not know. I mean, I knew what Target was doing, right? I knew right. about the satanic wear and all this kind of stuff. I did not see the in-store modeling of this. Mm. I mean, where they have like, you know, with the, the ram, with the horns yeah, and yeah, all of the, yeah. all of that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they had the t-shirts displayed like that. I thought it was just, you know, a person model, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's gone full on satanic. They are mm -hmm. after our children. And it's to your point with Black Lives Matter, where they said that they were out to destroy the traditional nuclear family. That yep. is what all of this is about, Delano. This is about mm -hmm. erasing that line so that... Uh, children are indoctrinated that there are no boundaries. If you want to marry your goat, you go right ahead. Mm -hmm. If you want to have seven husbands, three wives, and a pig, you go right ahead. Um, and so it's just this erasing of boundaries to normalize stuff that is not normal. And, uh, you know, I've talked about uh, a number of times on this show my oldest is teaching our adult Bible class. We've been studying the Old Testament. That's why you were admonished not to remove the ancient landmarks. You mm. need to know where those boundaries are. And we have removed all of those landmarks. That's what that's mm. what I think we're seeing um, as, as Christian parents. Uh, we're seeing those landmarks being moved and erased. And those boundaries blurred. And like you said, we're sending our kids out to... to uh, be educated by Caesar. And we were surprised that they're coming home Romans. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I, I've come too far. I've gone through too much. I've, I've dumped too much into these children. And mm -hmm. guess what? As a Christian parent, I'm held accountable. Yes. You know, to God uh, for my stewardship of my children. And so you can say that, you know, you're indoctrinating them and whatever. And I am. I freely admit that I'm yes. indoctrinating my children yes. because guess what? <clears throat> Everyone has a bias. Everyone has a worldview. Mm -hmm. uh, be it right, be it wrong, whatever it is, they have a worldview that they inculcate into their children. And their children choose it, embrace it, or reject it. Right. Um, until they get enough, you know, years behind them where they've got enough world experience, life experience to bring in new ideas, those kinds of things. But we're, our campuses, which used to be, you know, incubators for new ideas, are now, like you said, you go away and you come back after a semester and you reject everything that you've learned over mm -hmm. the past 18, 19, whatever years. So I really feel that until we reclaim, like you said, our God-given authority over our children. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to say my kids don't have input. I mean, we did our homeschooling. I don't know what your homeschool looks like, but my homeschool, we were very eclectic. It was all child-led. My kids were interested in something. We made it happen. My oldest was into robotics. So he got math, he got science, he got uh, group uh, participation. They had to do group projects. So he did oral presentations. He had to mm. defend his designs. He had to design. He was the lead designer for a couple of years for um, his later robotics years. So, you know, that kind of stuff, it was whole child learning. My youngest right. was into Capoeira. So he learned uh, oh, history, wow. the Afro-Brazilian slave trade. You know, he learned Portuguese for language, uh, music. The music is very heavy into uh, in, in built into Capoeira. So, you know, all of these whole child things. So you're learning a number of things, but it's things that they're interested in. And when you're interested in something, you'll go the whole nine yards right? Um, and, and learn about it. My oldest is now a game designer. His first game went to market about a week ago. 
Wow. So, you know, that that was something he was interested. He told me at 10 years old, he wanted to be a game designer. Almost 25 years old. Guess what? He's a game designer. My daughter was seven, said she wanted to be a veterinary, uh, a veterinarian. She's now a vet tech working at a clinic hired the day after she got her certification. So, you know, when you, all these people that want to tell us that, you know, oh, you're making your kids weird. Mark Lamont Hill told me that social, uh, that the kids that are homeschooled are awkward, you know, and I'm just like, they're so much better socialized than anybody else. All my kids, we would walk into church. My, uh, when my oldest was five, his best friend was an 80 year old lady in the congregation. I mean, you Mm -hmm. can get along with where else in society, do 40-year-olds hang out with other 40-year-olds? I mean, at work, exactly. you move to the 50-year-old floor when you have a birthday? I mean, that never happens. Exactly. It's only in school. It's a social construct. Yeah, I, I mean, you you hit on so many points that, that I agree with, but but the the charge, and I'm not, I'm not surprised it came from Mark Lamont Hill, <laughs> that homeschooling is going to make kids, you know, weird and socially awkward. And, and this one, I think every person has heard at some point. I don't I want certainly... them to fit in, so. Right. <laughs> right. And, 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 and I heard similar things about, you know, homeschooling, you know, kids who are homeschooled when I was growing up. But one of the things that we use um, classical conversations, that curriculum, yes. uh, but then we also meet once a week, you know, for our homeschool co-op. And one of the things that's apparent is that, and, and you hit the nail right on the head, school is the only place where you spend 10, 12 hours a day around, only around people your exact age. And what I found with a lot of the homeschool kids is that they can, they speak very well. Yes. They, they, to your point, it's presentations every week, starting at four years old. Um, they know how to interact with both older kids and younger kids and even how to interact with adults. Yes. So I, I actually think that they are going to be better off in terms of their interpersonal communications. Um, and a lot of, and a lot of the homeschool families that we know also um, limit the amount of exposure to technology that the kids have. Yeah. Um, because nowadays it's like, you know, adults and children, you go out to a restaurant, a family of six or seven, everybody's got their head buried in a device. And, you know, the notion that, you know, even going back to that main charge, oh, the homeschool kids are not going to fit in to your point. I'm like, good. I I don't want, I don't, I do not want my children to fit in to the things that this culture says, you know, are, are, are normal. Um, I, I want them to be that one person in a crowd of a hundred people, and particularly a hundred people who look like them, because that the 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 race, the use of race to propel all of these subversive social movements um, is both strategic um, and extremely dangerous. So, if my children are are in an environment let's say that they're teenagers or even adults and 99 other black folk are saying, no, you to be a good black person, you must believe that men can have babies again. I love Mark Hill. Mark Lamont Hill. I want them to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right. And, and I'm going to stand on God's word. And, and if the Bible says that God created male and female, who am I, you know, a mere mortal to, to, to contradict, you know, God's word. And then on top of that, if a man can have a baby, where does the fertilized egg get implanted? Where's right. the birth canal, right? right. I, th- these are the types of questions that I want them to be able to ask and feel confident, even if everyone else in that room is going against them, that they, that they never allow social pressure 
to force them to lie about things that they know are not true. Um, and I, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, finish your point. No, no, so I, and, and, I, and I think what school does now, particularly in, the, in this sort of current era, <clears throat> is that it forces conformity. Yes. Now the left loves to talk about diversity, but when they say diversity, that means getting a bunch of people who look differently to think and say all the same the same thing. Exactly. Uh, so so yeah, I, I don't I don't want my kids to fit into this world system, this world's ways of of thinking and knowing and being, um, because I I see what they are. They are it's not it's subversive, it's self destructive, and for people, particularly people who reject the notion of God as as a sovereign sort of uh, sovereign creator of the world. The people, the the Dar- Darwinists, right? Yeah. People who believe in natural selection. It's not lost on me that every sort of ideology that they push, from abortion to transgenderism um, to euthanasia, these are all ideas that lead in death. So for people that that believe in natural selection, they sure do spend a lot of time trying to push artificial selection. Yes. Um, so you would you would think that people who who believe in Darwin would want to do things to propagate the species, but um, mm-hmm. this is what happens to a confused and and deluded mind is that they contribute to their own self destruction. And and I don't that is not a system. I don't care what color you paint it with. I don't care if it's coming from the NAACP, the Urban League, National Action Network. I don't care if it's coming from Barack and Michelle Obama. I don't care if it's coming from LeBron James. Yep. It does not matter to me. If if people are promoting ideas that go against the word of God, I'm not interested. And I think more, more people, and particularly Black Christians, need to be comfortable saying that. That's because right. Because we, we, we are at a crossroads right now, and particularly Black believers, it's, it's either going to be the Bible or a Black card. Because if being Black means endorsing the NAACP's agenda, their pride agenda, if it means endorsing BET's support of Planned Parenthood, um, then you can take my black card now and I'll, you know, just be known as something else (laughs) from now until I leave this earth. That's absolutely right. I mean, here's the other thing, you know, there's a lot of Christian parents that put their kids into Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts Mm. is aligned with Planned Parenthood. Mm. But I've tried to talk to people about that. It's like, look, I got to have my thin mints. What well, is, you know, are thin mints really worth you chill out your child's soul? You're right. going to expose them to this doctrine. And they're at that age where, you know, they're learning about their bodies and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, American girls uh, used to have a great body book. And now they put in the about chest binders and all this kind of stuff. And we're going to trot this out in front of our kids. And so mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you, because, mm-hmm. you know, your background is very similar to mine in that you grew up in a liberal household. Um, but now you espouse conservative values. And we as a people historically um, have values that are far more aligned with conservative principles than Mm -hmm. anything. And yet the way that we vote, the way that you have described it, you know, this whole black lives matter, DEI reparations, you know, uh, bashing on governor DeSantis because he won't teach black history when it's in baked into their education code. It's this queer theory and CRT stuff. 
that he's actually talking about that has nothing to do with black history, by the way. I mean, when has queer theory ever been a part of black history? I mean, I've been black as long as I've been black, 59 years. It's never been a part of black history as far as mm -hmm. I know. So, I mean, all of this stuff, where did we go wrong? Because I'll tell you this, when I served on Black Voices for Trump, I had individual conversations with people. And I asked them, do you know who Margaret Sanger is? Do you know who uh, worked it out so that the financing for HBCUs uh, was viable for a much longer period of time? It was under Donald Trump mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. happened, where, you know, they used to have to go every year for, you know, whatever it was. And he baked it in so that it was 10 years at a time that they got full funding and even added to what they were getting. So, you know, as as. Uh, President Biden goes to uh, Howard University and gives his commencement address. A lot of those yeah. folks are there because of President Trump mm -hmm. and the, the money that he gave so that they didn't have to close their doors. So where did this disconnect occur and how do we get it back on track? Yeah, that's a great question. But first, of all, let me say something. I, I wouldn't say that I grew up in a liberal household. Um, I grew up, again, I grew up in New York City and, you know, 90s you know i'm an 80s baby um but i also grew up in the church uh to parents who emigrated to this country in the late 70s early 80s so i grew up with what people would consider socially conservative values but i grew up in new york city so nobody i knew voted for republicans because that's one there weren't that many to vote for and two you know the culture was oh democrats love black people and republicans don't so th th there was that sort of tension there, um, you know, as, as I was coming up. But all of the values that I that I received as a, as a kid would be considered right of center, right? And the importance of marriage and marriage before children. Um, the notion that a man who does not work shall not eat. Um, the belief that a man who take who does not take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. These are all things that I learned, you know, growing up. <laughs> In, in both in my household and Sunday school, you know, when I was at my parents, my friends' houses, so on and so forth. Um, but I, I believe that, you know, post-1960s, um, the decision, and I don't know if it was an active decision or, or sort of just happened this way, so to speak, but the, the Black communities sort of um, emphasis on political representation and uh, social uplift and economic and social progress through the political system, through changing of laws and public policy. While I understand why people would put their eggs in that basket has had significant consequences for us as a community. One, it makes people assume that the troubles that we have, the issues that we have in our communities are going to be solved by more black elected officials. Um, the only thing that the increase in representation, you know, in the CBC and the Congress and a few people in the Senate has done is make those black elected officials wealthy. It's given their families, you know, lifelong health care you know, inside information when it comes to, you know, capital markets, stocks and bonds and so on and so forth. I, I question the, the 
degree to which Maxine Waters's personal fortunes have had a trickle down effect on her constituents. So I, I think again, one problem is putting all of our eggs in the political basket to the to to the to the extent that even as our families and communities start to deteriorate, the call from the black leadership class, the people I call the Afrostocracy, the black progressive politicians, pundits, professors, preachers, and performers, um, the call for more and more black representation has really not done much. Um, so I think that that was one move. So focusing on politics and so, quote unquote systemic change, often to the detriment of focusing on culture was, was a big problem. I think all of this, the things that we're talking about um, were supercharged after the election of President Obama. Now I'm not saying he caused all of these things. What I am saying is the election of, of a black president, right? However people wanna describe his ethnic background, but the first black president was such a monumental sort of achievement for the country and particularly for the black community that there were people who were willing to, in some respects, abandon principles that they'd held for a long time. And I'm thinking of even left of center black pastors were not supporting gay marriage in the 2010s. But after Obama started to move, then they started to reconsider some of their teaching, some of their rhetoric, um, and, and you know, sort of compromise biblical orthodoxy on sexual matters. And I think since then, what you've seen is that the left is very strategic, and they realize that given this country's history of race and racism, the most surefire way to inoculate yourself from criticism socially is to say that you're doing something on behalf of marginalized and oppressed communities. And, and sort of the, the most marginalized and oppressed community over the last 400 plus years, they say, look, it's black folks. So when we want to push abortion with full force, don't make the, the suburban middle-class white woman the face of that, right? Yes, she wants to abort her child so she can go to Swarthmore or get a job at the Atlantic, but she's not the face. What you do is you say that if this pro-life um, bill is passed, poor black mothers in Mississippi aren't going to be able to get a job, you know, or go to community college. You make them the face. If you want to push the pride agenda, don't make middle-class white men in, you know, uh, Greenwich Village the face, right? They, they want to mimic the sort of bourgeoisie lifestyle they want to be able to partner and purchase property and and you know leave things to their to their significant other. Don't do that. Make black trans women the face of it and say that if you don't support the pride agenda, then black trans women are going to continue to be murdered in our streets at an astronomical rate. Um so so I think what, what's happened is that you know the black community has been used. And a lot of people say, well, that's been going on for a long time. And I think that's a fair critique. But I think it's been supercharged in the last, you know, six to 10 years so that anything that you want to push, 
whether you want to fight against fat phobia, you, you put a black model on the cover <laughs> of, a, of a magazine in the height of COVID where obesity and hypertension are, um, you know, sort of uh, yes. con confounding factors. I can't remember the specific term. Comorbidities. Comorbidities, mm -hmm. thank you. So, so you put her on the face. So anytime you want to subvert a norm, the, 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 the infantryman for that move to take that, that piece of territory um, are going to disproportionately be black. And that's, that's the way our politics has been operating, um, I'd say at least since 2008. So, so Obama was the carrot for that movement in terms of pulling some black folk away from their traditional values. And Trump was was the stick, was the rocket fuel, because yes. now people and 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 I've even, I've seen this. People actually have said this. I saw a Washington Post profile of black churches across the country, um, who were uncomfortable, particularly after the Dobbs decision was leaked before the final decision right. came down. And what you heard was a lot of black preachers, and all these churches weren't biblically <clears throat> orthodox, but it is what it is they would say something to the effect of, well, I'm personally pro-life, but I, I, don't, I don't want to be too vocal on this issue. And part of the reason is because I don't want to be associated with the white evangelical Trump voters who support this issue. So these are people who are willing to see one out of every three black babies die in, the, in their mother's womb just so that they don't get associated with Trump voters. Mm. And these people who tell you that they really care about black lives. Um, so, so there's a lot of confusion and delusion going on in in our sort of cultural political conversations, um, but I don't think most people are aware of it. And and BLM was really they just encapsulated the entire thing. You know, you're talking about a pro LGBT Marxist, yes, uh, godless movement. Who these these are women who practice divination. They literally, I I, I heard interviews where they said. When we pour out libations and we we invoke the say her name, we are trying to um, channel this person's spirit. So we pour out things that we think that they like, and and you have Christian churches that are getting behind this and pushing it because a lot of pastors, while they may be good at exegeting the scripture, are terrible when it comes to exegeting the culture. So they they get swept up just by a tagline and they say, "Oh yeah, I believe Black Lives Matter." And they make a movement right through the front doors of the church that is meant to subvert biblical truth. Um, so, yeah, so when you see a pro-LGBT, you know, trans-affirming, queer-affirming, um, uh, anti-nuclear family organization come on the scene and Black folk open it with welcome arms, with, with open arms, and no Black media professionals, no journalists ask the first question I would have asked, what type of pro-black movement um, believes that the, the the nuclear family should be destroyed? That's what type right. of communities do you want to have? Do you just want all women raising their own children or government support? Tell me more about that. It's the first question I would have asked. Mm -hmm. But you know, the people that the outlets that I've written for, the Root, the Griot, people like Roland Martin and Don Lemon and the Breakfast Club and Joy Reid refuse to ask those questions. So. So yeah, the, the, we have moved a, a, 
very far away from sort of our traditional values. And this is the last yes. piece I'll say. And for a lot of black folk today, they reject their, 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 the religious faith and foundation yes. of their forefathers. They reject their moral convictions. Yes. They reject their approach to family formation, which is lost, you know, put it simply, marriage before carriage. Mm-hmm. They reject their values. They reject their work ethic. They reject their determination. And the only thing that they want from the generation of their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-grandparents is their story of struggle. Because yes. they can use that story to say, pay me for what people did to my great-great-grandparents. And that's the only thing that a lot of them want from those previous generations. They don't want anything else. They don't want the wisdom. They don't want the understanding. All they want is to, to trade in on, on the struggle. Um, and I, I think that speaks to speaks a great deal to why we are where we are at this point. You know what's so sad about that is, I mean, you're absolutely accurate. And I mean, people have abandoned uh, the faith that they grew up with, the traditional mm -hmm. values that they grew up with, all of this DEI stuff. You know, I was reading last night where Chick-fil-A now has gone full woke and they've hired a DEI guy. And I was thinking, I was talking to my husband and I said, you know, how much do you think that DEI guy is getting at Chick-fil-A? I mean, what do you think the average salary is? Probably, you know, high five figures, high, yeah, high five figures, probably. I thought, you know, how many after school programs could that money have funded? How many, um, what kind of a scholarship could that have provided for someone at an HBCU? Those kinds of things. You know, it, it, it boggles the mind how much money Black Lives Matter raised. It was what, 464 billion, was it? Million, something like that. I mean, certainly more than enough to paint Black Lives Matter down a big street and buy three mansions or four mansions for some people, right? Um, where were they? paying for funerals at these people that they're saying, you know, oh, you know, look, another uh, person has, another unarmed black person has been killed. Or Did they pay for those funerals? I don't remember that. I remember hearing LeBron James paid for a funeral. I remember hearing some other famous people, I think Tyler Perry stepped in and paid for, but I didn't hear that Black Lives Matter picked up the tab. I, you know, if, if, if we are a systemically racist society, I don't believe that we are. I believe racism exists, but I don't think as a system, but if you really truly believe that, then why didn't you donate a ton of scholarships to uh, HBCUs or to a, a, any school so that more people of color could enter the criminal justice system and become correctional officers, police officers, judges, criminal defense attorneys, paralegals, whatever it is. But that didn't happen. I mean, I want a seat at the table. I don't want you to give me a check. I'm going to blow through it maybe, or even if I don't and I save it up or whatever it is, at some point it's going to be gone. I want something that's generational. I want something that's tangible. I'm 59 years old. I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. I cannot remember a business on my block that was not owned by a black person. I grew up, we had two uh, dentists that were black. We had a black pharmacist who is now, I read, I, I, I look back at, at the old neighborhood sometimes, 
50 years later, his son and his grandson are still, they still own a pharmacy in San Francisco. That's generational wealth. We're not teaching our kids about that. So I, I fear that we're doing these like buzzwords and all these little bywords and this kind of stuff without any sort of long game strategy where we are teaching our children how to do taxes, all of these kinds of things. We are talking about DEI and making sure that we've got a, 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 a diversity, inclusion, equity, inclusion person on every campus. And yet our kids cannot read. You saw the statistics about uh, in Baltimore, I think it was like, you know, 23 uh, the, the schools are failing our kids. I have been, and I say this every week, it sounds like, but, you know, I've never seen a Republican mayor of, uh, Oakland or some of these bigger cities, Baltimore, whatever. And um, our kids are failing. And so all of this money that we're wasting on all of these programs, why are we not investing it in charter schools, in public schools? I mean, you talk about Barack Obama. He's the one that pulled the plug on the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program while his kids went to a 24-year, $24,000 a year school in the lower grades. So this whole kind of um, soft bigotry of low expectations where we're dummying down all the tests. You know, my daughter, when she was 14, was furious about that. She said, you don't need to dummy down a test for me. Give me any test. She, was, she had a college vocabulary at the age of 12, I think. I was doing the SAT for her spelling tests every week. I was using the 12th grade SAT lists. And she didn't know it. She overheard me talking to one of my friends and like, what? I've been doing, you know, so it's, 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 it's shocking to me that we have accepted this behavior. It sounds like it's really under the guise of kindness and the same thing with, with abortion. It's a kind thing. That's what Margaret Sanger said. The kindest thing that you can do, the most merciful act is to kill this child. That ultimately it must lead to a cleaner race. Where have you heard that kind of talk before? But you know, we're letting it happen and we're not saying anything. And like you, to your point, you know, in the pulpit, we need to be going back to these traditional values and mm -hmm. saying these things are wrong. You need to be fighting against these things. If you are a Christian parent, <laughs> yank your kids out of that government school. Maybe yep. you can't school them, but someone else can. And and I guess the thing about homeschooling, I'll just put this plug right there just to think about if you're on the fence who says that you have to school between the hours of nine and five right nobody right, says right, that right right we didn't i went with by my kids body clocks i have one kid that woke up at the crack of dawn and two others that uh, woke up at the crack of noon so i mean <laughs> you know it's up to your body clock so you know oh these poor single mothers and blah 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 and you know you don't have to I mean, if you have to do childcare during the day, I get that. But you can still homeschool your children. Don't let Absolutely. people tell you that between the hours of such and such, you have to do this kind of thing. And I'll, I'll stop there. But that just that just makes me a little crazy because, um, you know, we're talking about fatherlessness. The mm. statistics that you talked, I want to get into that a little bit. Um, it says that 20%, uh, 28% of white American children are born to unmarried women. The number of Asian Americans born to a single parent is only 11%. But in the African American community, the children born out of wedlock is 70%. I read mm -hmm. a statistic that said that 17% of black children reach the age of 17 with both parents in the home. That's a tragedy. Yes. 
how do we get back to having a two parent household? Because we know that when a child does not have a father in the home, uh, there, there is no two income family. So already mm -hmm. you're looking at um, a high degree of poverty. Uh, that male role model in the life mm -hmm. of a child that is crucial. Tim Scott talks about this and how he glommed on to his mentor who taught him about small business ownership and those sorts of things. He needed a male in his life, a male role model. So we've taken fathers out of the home. I grew up in a single parent household. So how do we get back to yeah. uh, that two parent model is the best and uh, empowering our males we have really neutered our males, I believe, empower mm. our males to be the spiritual leaders of our home, to raise up our children, to be co-partners. I don't know what I would do without my husband. I mean, I mm. honestly didn't think that I would uh, have a marriage that's almost 34 years this year wow. that we've been Where's married. Um, I, I never thought coming from a single parent household... This man has been an incredible father to our children, worked mm. so that I could stay home and homeschool in California, in the most expensive area of California, um, and is so hands-on with our kids. Mm. Uh, and it has made all the difference. How do we get back to that model? <sighs> this is the $6 million question. Um, I think it's a number of things. I think the decline in marriage nationally, all right, um, is a reflection of a decline in religious faith. That's 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 one of my positions. Everybody will tie it to economics and so on and so forth. And I think that that's part of it. But a big part of it is, you know, three out of ten Americans identify as not having any particular religious background or the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, right? Um, because, you know, you often hear that politics is downstream from culture. And I believe that that's true to an extent, but culture is downstream from religion. Um, because when we talk culture, it's not just, you know, ethnicity, it's not just food and music, it's beliefs, it's behaviors, it's values. And we have lost or rejected the notion that marriage is valuable and that it's necessary. So I think to get back to where things used to be and, and hopefully to improve, um, we, people of goodwill, whether Christian or not, because I believe in common grace, need to begin banging the drum that marriage is necessary, valuable, um, desirable, and accessible. Like, so the first, the first step in addressing this issue is to name it, to, to name the problem, which is, you know, the rise in, in non-marital births across the country. As you said, the only ethnic major ethnic group that is, has not crossed over what I call the Moynihan threshold, right? That 25% non-marital birth rate are Asians. Um, so I think, I think we need to, to name it. And I think we need to marshal all of our resources, and, and I'll say this particularly for the black community, where that 70% number has been about that for over 20 plus years, we need to marshal all of our political capital, our social capital, our financial resources, our, um, 
uh, our sort of moral authority and marshal all of those things and direct them like a laser at this particular problem. The problem is uh, doing that is going to mean letting go of some other things. And when you have, I'll take, I'll pick on the NAACP again. A couple of years ago, the NAACP joined with some B and C and maybe D list actors. Maybe two of them I, I knew by, by seeing them. I didn't know anybody by name. All white. And they cut a black and white video, very somber, very serious, uh, where all the, the actors and the actresses said, I, I take responsibility. I take responsibility for racism. When I hear racist comments, I'm going to call them out. And so, and they did this for like two minutes. And for some reason, the NAACP thought that this was a worthwhile endeavor. Now, an organization that's headquartered in Baltimore, where, you know, again, the majority of black kids are, are you know, growing up in, in, in parent in homes headed by a single mom, where youth crime is reaching crisis levels. And this organization that's supposed to represent the interests of black folk across the country spends its time, its capital, its, you know, sort of moral authority haranguing white people who live in Hollywood to take responsibility for the condition of black communities all across the country. That, that should just tell you how backward these quote unquote civil rights organizations are. So I think the first step is to name the issue, the problem. I think another step is to look at ways to spread awareness, not just about the problem, but about potential remedies. And I'm not sure if you've heard of the success sequence, but the success sequence is based on research that shows that millennials who finished high school, got a job, and got married before they had children had a single digit poverty rate by the time they hit their mid thirties. This is a cross ethnic group. This is regardless of what family background somebody, someone came from. When you do those three steps, finish school, get a job, marry before having kids, um, more often than not, things are going to work out in your favor. Um, so delivering that type of life script and, and, and exposing particularly young kids to it, even in school, in a descriptive manner, not necessarily a prescriptive manner, I think is another step that we can take. And I, and I love it because it's tangible, it's measurable, um, and it's accessible. So instead of trying to telling young black kids, well, your life, your life will never get better until you know white people clean up their act and begin to see you as a whole person and so on and so forth, you tell them, if you want to avoid poverty, just do these three things all of which are within your control. Uh, I, I think that's a very different message than what we get right now. And then another part of it is just, again, um, fine-tuning the culture so that our music, our art, our television shows, our um, websites, our news and information are all pointing in the direction that we want to go. Uh, the problem again is that doing that is going to take, guaranteed to take bread out of the mouths 
of many black people um, who may be supportive in name only, supportive in name in terms of wanting to see more, you know, black men and women get married and start families. But I would argue, for instance, that it is impossible for a young black man who grows up in Compton or the South side of Chicago or West Baltimore to spend his entire life being bathed and marinated in a culture that tells him that his female peers are female dogs and garden tools, B's and H's, and then expect that young man at 20 years old to say, well, I want children. Maybe I should marry that woman who I've been told my entire life is disagreeable and sexually promiscuous. Maybe I should marry her before I give her a baby. That's not happening. That is not happening. Because again, this is the culture that you're being brought up in. It's the air that you breathe. It's the water that you drink. And until we are ready to really wrestle with how we are shaping our own norms through music that people who look like us you know, are producing, um, I don't think we're ready to have that conversation, you know, drawing the connection between what we consume, you know, our inputs and the outputs that we measure out in the real world. So, so yeah, I, I think, you know, to me, the fight and the issue for the Black community over the next 20 years is reconstituting, strengthening, equipping, um, the, the black family so that we put marriage back before carriage um, such to such a degree that in 25 years, when a person hears that, you know, let's say somebody at work and they say, oh yeah, my daughter's having a baby, that the husband would be inferred. So you won't have to ask, oh, is she married? I'll know that we are we've reached the promised land in, on this particular issue when a 25-year-old woman in Newark, New Jersey, who says that she's pregnant, um, doesn't have to feel pressure to, to mention that she's already married because everyone would know that the young women in that community don't have babies unless they're having them with their husbands. Um, that is a tall task. That's not going to happen overnight. Um, but it, it will require a massive reprioritization within the black community. And it's not something I, that is not something I'm sure uh, the aristocracy wants to take on right now. I absolutely agree with you. I had a, a conversation with a friend just the other day and we were talking about that, that there are some hard conversations that we need to have within our community. I mean, that's how ACONS got started was talking about, uh, unemployment under Barack Obama um, mm -hmm. and just how it hit the black community the hardest. And mm -hmm. so, you know, having these conversations, but you're absolutely right. We're going to have to tackle this and culture is huge. Mm -hmm. That is such a big issue. As you said, to unpack that when it's all we hear, all we see, all we're exposed to and all we're that's expected from us. We're not expected to rise very mm -hmm. high. It, it is that soft bigotry of, of low expectations. Um, you know, two of my children are adopted. I don't just talk the talk. I walk the walk. And that's not a mm -hmm. pat on my back. We just, we adopted a sibling set that were older. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, you know, they weren't the, 
um, little tiny babies or anything. It was, it was very hard, but both of them have broken the cycle, mm. the generational cycle. I mean, the way that these kids talk, I mean, I see them, I hear them. My youngest, I mean, has learning disabilities, but he can put together a sermon that will make you weep. Mm. Um, and so breaking that, seeing them break that cycle and talk about, you know, I want to get married. I want to mm. have a family, those kinds of things, as opposed to the first family that they had where the, that was not the case. Mm. And so you're right. We need to have these difficult conversations. Where do we start? I mean, I, I agree that that, that, yeah. that the church needs to do what it's supposed to do. But how do we start having these conversations? How do we broach that topic in the community? Because, you know, we're labeled as sellouts, da-da-da, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So how do we start having those conversations and show people, like you said, the empirical evidence that doing these three things leads to better outcomes? I mean, that's a good question. I think, I think I'm a big believer in growing where you're planted, right? So some, sometimes you start with your loved ones, your friends, your family, because oftentimes it's the people in your own household. It, yeah. It's your, your relatives. Sometimes it's your church, church family who have some sort of fuzzy sense that these things are true, but are not grounded enough to withstand the pressure once they leave out of your house or the doors of the church. And they are easily swept away by every new wind and wave of doctrine, right? So, so I think we, we start with the people with whom we have the most influence. Um, and it helps us sort of articulate these ideas. And it helps them be built up and fortified um, with, with the truth. And then from there, I think we just use whatever means are available. So this podcast obviously is, is one example of that um, for people who write who write publicly, as I do. I started writing publicly with Black and Married with Kids back in 2009. I was the only single writer. I didn't even have a girlfriend at the time. But I would write about the importance of relationships and, you know, do nice guys really finish last? And are you really ready for a relationship? That type of thing. And, and it was a good introduction for me because I wasn't writing about marriage and family from a political perspective, but more so on a personal perspective. And a lot of people that I knew you know, friends from college, so on and so forth, really supported my writing. But I noticed that changing when I started to write for the Federalists. And I started making the argument that, you know, the Black family is central to positive social and economic outcomes. Now it was a little different because I'm making a slightly different argument. And there were people who basically their position was, well, you don't talk about white supremacy enough. You're always harping on the nuclear family and marriage. The irony is that the people who did that were all nine out of 10 times married with children themselves. Mm -hmm. And these are not just, you know, folks who go down to justice of the peace. These are the folks who both have college degrees, both working at major corporations. They take pictures on Christmas morning and matching pajamas. They got <laughs> the two kids. They got the, the Shih Tzu or, or the French bulldog. And I'm just saying to myself, why don't you just preach what you practice? Yeah. Right? These are people who vacation on Martha's Vineyard. They'll send pictures. They'll send tweets and say, oh, I just saw the Obamas at, at the local ice cream shop. So they live the very lifestyle that, that, that I'm promoting. 
But when I promote it publicly, they have a problem with it because they don't hear me criticizing white people enough. So yeah. I think, you know, a big part of it is just to start where we are, use the platforms that are available, use the gifts that God gave us, and just continue to um, push this message in love, not from a place of criticism, yes. not telling a, a single mom that she's a, a terrible person and no one will love her because she already had a child, not telling a person who grew up being raised by a single mom that your mom was a terrible person. And uh, this, is, this is not about blaming or shaming. Mm -mm. And, and we actually have a model for this because anyone who's been within a thousand feet of a, of a, of a classroom, particularly in an urban setting, understands it, how this model works. Whether it's a government school, public charter school, you come into these schools and you have Howard University, class of 2045, Yale, Dartmouth, um, FAMU, uh, Dillard University, Southern University, uh, Texas A&M, so Texas Southern University. And these are schools that promote college yes. to kids, often who come from families where no one has gone to college. Mm -hmm. And they don't do it. And the parents understand that the school is not trying to shame them. The school is trying to give children a picture of what can be and and often from the school's perspective, what should be for those kids when they get older. And what I'm saying is if we can promote college to kids who come from families where no one's been to school, we can certainly promote marriage and, and traditional family formation to kids who come from families where no one's ever been married. I, I think you can do both. Um, so, so I think, you know, we, we just start where we are, use the tools that God's given us, and then also hold our quote unquote leaders accountable. So when they go on TV and they spend 20 minutes talking about why Robin D'Angelo is needed to advance the cause of anti-racism and in the black community, ask them, mm -hmm. assuming you can rid every white person of their fragility, <laughs> now they're completely open to whatever arguments you wanna make about anti-racism and bias and inequity. How exactly would that change the 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 homicide victimization rate in this country in baltimore in philadelphia yes. in washington dc how, how 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 would that change anything so why is it that you president and naacp spend all of your time and energy trying to get white people to behave you tell them which neighborhoods they should live in what schools they should send their children to what products they should buy what causes they support and then when it comes time and, and, and your black constituents are saying, okay, so, okay, coach, what do we need to do to improve our lives? Your only message is stay black and vote. That's it. Just vote. Vote for whoever, whatever Democrat is at the top of the ticket, and that will solve all your problems. So I think we need to start holding these leaders <clears throat> accountable and saying, why, why you, you sound, you guys sound like you're leaders of the white community. Because whenever it comes time for film session and, and, and <laughs> players to understand what the coach requires of them to be successful, you, you, you only appeal to the moral sensibilities of the very people who you say are oppressing us. And when we ask you what we need to do to improve our own lot and our own social condition, your only response is to vote for elected officials.
Um, so something about that has to change. So yeah, I think we just use what's available to us. And as I said, we just need to grow where we're planted um, and begin to just beat on that drum um, incessantly to the point where these people, the politicians, the pundits, the professors, the preachers and the performers have to respond and say, okay, okay it's, it's time for us to start singing a different tune. That is absolutely right. If you are just joining us, our guest this segment has been Delano Squires. Where can our audience continue to follow your work and find you online? Sure. Um, well, I, I do most of my troublemaking on Twitter. Um, so at Delano Squires, D-E-L-A-N-O-S-Q-U-I-R-E-S, all one string. Um, and I, I try not to make trouble, but nowadays you get in trouble for saying things that are true um, because people just don't want to hear them. So um, I write twice a week for The Blaze. Anyone who Googles my name, Delano Squires and Blaze, can see all of the articles I've written for The Blaze since 2021. Uh, and then I also write op-eds you know as part of my job job with heritage foundation so but I, I tend to share anything that i do on twitter primarily um and that's that's the main place people can follow me to hear what it is that i'm thinking about and the trouble that i'm starting on any given day so excellent this is a great conversation i hope you'll consider coming back and, and absolutely we can talk about this some more all right thank you all right Okay, well, that was a great conversation. Here's the part of our show where we bring in DK to talk about what we talked about today. So, DK, come on in. Hey. Wow, Anita. what a great conversation, Almost huh? Us. Yeah, very important topic. A lot yes, of, yes. We don't know a lot of big issues. I could have talked about that all day. Uh, I'm a little head up, so. I mean, just yesterday, uh, for those who don't know, uh, our friend Adrian Ross uh, dropped the podcast with me and she and I talked about a lot of these same issues. So uh, just talking about that today just kept uh, kept me activated. So. Well, now that you mention it, I just want to see if I can do this. Deficits, right? Oh man. So I don't know. It, it baffles me. It baffles me. But I have to believe that there's that there's hope that 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 people will um, be more. I, I mean, I was accused of, of being. I don't know what the term was, but I'm I'm all caught up in the Republican Party. First of all, both parties are a hot mess. Yeah. And so I pointed out, listen, I'm a Christian, and so I'm going to stand up for what Christ says, and I'm going to stand up for what principles are. It's not about, and he mentioned Fox News. I'm like, I don't even pay attention to Fox News. So you're wrong yeah. there, you know, but to call me self-hating when I'm the one trying to stand up so that they're not killing our babies, so that our children are educated properly. And you just follow, you're just following along because you're told that you're supposed to be a Democrat and you're deceived into following along with people who have not your best interests at heart. They want your vote. That's well, you know what's crazy about that is BLM, you know, I heard another thing. There's another $9 million that got raised or something this year. Uh, and what did it buy? Did it buy somebody another mansion? I don't see any HBCU scholarships earmarked for uh, entry into the criminal justice system. I don't see where any of these funerals were paid for by Black Lives Matter. I don't see that they did oh, anything please. except 
write their name on the street and buy some mansions for their top staff. That's all I've seen Black Lives Matter do. And yet they are for the destruction of the nuclear family. We did so much better historically, even under Jim Crow, even under segregation, even under some very difficult times. but our families were intact because we had a 77 something like that uh, percent rate of two parent households but now our families it's 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 decimated i read a statistic a couple years ago that said that 17 percent of children reach the age of 17 with two parents in the household in the black community that is a tragic statistic but we don't want to talk about that we no, want to no. talk about white fragility and how the white man is 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 oppressing us and that's what this whole thing with florida is and that's what makes me angry is it's not about ron DeSantis saying that he is against teaching black history it is in the the code the education code for florida that you must teach slavery that you must teach black history that you have to that is in their law it's codified what Ron DeSantis had a problem with what i have a problem with and what i dare say you have a problem with and your listeners have a problem with is the fact that they're trying to inject queer theory and crt which is you know you oppressed me and so i can't do anything now and i mean that's all hoo-ha because when has queer theory ever been a part of black history it's still not a part of black history i'm I'm glad you brought that up That was fun. We had a lot of fun in that podcast. I could tell. <laughs> yes, yes. We we got we got a little uh, head up. So yeah. I just want to sh- wanted to show a little sample of it. That's just like three minutes of a uh, I think an hour and ten minute interview. Yeah, um, yeah. It was very very passionate on both sides. It was. It was. You can find it on our Substack also. I think we we cross we cross posted it. You can find it on our Acons uh, YouTube account. It's on our playlist under appearances, and of course, you can always go to Adrian Ross's Substack, uh, AdrianRossCommunications.substack.com, and you can find it there also. One of the things he talked about was this really, well, I thought malicious comment coming from the View. Um, I think. The only purpose of the view is to have these women say things to irritate conservatives, but <laughs> they they do that very well. They, they do that again. very well. I'll give them that. They did it not too long ago when they talked about the the Tim Scott jumping into the race, the Tim Scott candidacy, you know, and of course they did it in very racial terms. <clears throat> how he's supposedly uh an exception to the rule, and the rule is, is that blacks can't make it without a healthy dose of government intervention. That um, if if we are not dependent on the government by way of the Democrat Party, that we're not going to survive in this country. And I saw uh, just this morning there was the interview with the the DEI chief of Target. Um, <sighs> I don't know. Everybody has a DEI chief. I should have majored in that. I bet that job pays pretty well. And she, and she's she's telling Essence magazine that one of the hardest things to be in the world every day is black. So that's so ridiculous. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I just have to. The whole thing, first of all, about the view is 
Joy Behar is talking about how she knows more about being a black man than a black man does. And do you know what the worst part of that was? Not how condescending that sounded, although it was very condescending and it made me very angry. There is a black woman sitting next to her who says nothing, who doesn't say, um, hello, black woman in the room. Maybe I could take a shot at that. Of course, she's going to give us her democratic talking points, but at least she's black. But she's going to let the white woman talk about how a black man should act and respond? She's not black and she's not a man. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's all part of the Democrat narrative that blacks have to be dependent upon yeah. the, the government by way of the Democrat Party. It's like having your kid, a black kid, at the starting line mm -hmm. with people of other ethnicities and giving your giving the black child uh, a preset of excuses yes. before the race even begins, so it it affects us negatively. This attitude, <laughs> why you're not seeing blacks achieve academically the way other ethnic groups are. You don't see as many black kids aspiring to be doctors and lawyers and professors and engineers and so forth. You're not even seeing as many black kids thinking that they can finish high school, then go to some uh, trade school or learn a trade to be an auto mechanic. They're, they're they have this uh, victim mentality that's constantly reinforcing them. Um, and Tim Scott is a, a great example of what irritates the white liberal because I think Joy Behart was saying that um, Scott is the exception to the rule, that he's an exceptional and elite or something like that. And if you know Tim Scott and you know his biography, and I do. there's nothing especially exceptional about him other than the amount of success he he gathered throughout his life. I mean, he wasn't a star athlete. He couldn't rap or sing. He He wasn't the kind of kid that had a PhD when he was 13. You know, he struggled academically, in fact. Yeah. Um, he wasn't born, you know, a rich parents who opened who had had a last name that opened a lot of doors for him. You know, he couldn't go say, oh, my name is Scott, Tim Scott, and get a, you know, seven-figure Wall Street job right out of college. Yeah. You know, he 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 worked his way up. I remember he at one point- He pulled himself up by his bootstraps, and that's not yeah. a bad thing. And that's the exact message that mm -hmm. more Blacks should be getting, that it's like what Delano was saying, if you do the right things in your life, if you- you don't have kids out of wedlock if you stay away from crime you finish at least high school that you're the odds that you will not have to live in poverty you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps in this country and this constant messaging that like the quote i just read from the dei chief of target mm -hmm. that is so hard being black or what joy behar said uh, people who make a success of, the, of their lives in this country they're and happen to be black are so extraordinary. It's not extraordinary. And what's interesting is you never hear this narrative spoken by or spoken to the, the legal immigrant class. I'll specify the legal immigrant class because I see legal immigrants as being very different from the illegal immigrants. Mm -hmm. When you see the legal immigrant class come to this country, whether they're from India, whether they're from Africa, Central America, Asia, they're not teaching their children that it's hard to be 
Uh, for example, Indian, it's so hard to be Indian in this country that I'm going to excuse you from coming from, I'm going to excuse you from having to come home from school and have decent grades on your report card. You, you don't hear, you don't hear Asian parents teaching their kids that, but that's the message we're hearing uh, black, black kids being taught. So it's, it's, it's a very negative messaging. It's aimed specifically at African-American children and children of illegal immigrants. So it's all very dangerous, all very pernicious. And, and like, you, like you said with Adrian and like you said with Delano, it's something we have to fight back against. Absolutely. And I think we, we need to start having these conversations. I'm tired of hearing about how the white man has oppressed me. White people have not oppressed me. Um, you know, I went to college. I have had a number of jobs, work with Alan West. I mean, you know, I've served on presidential candidates, senatorial candidates. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I've had an amazing life. I've done some things that, you know, very few people get to do. It's rare air sometimes uh, that I get to breathe. And, you know, I'm not anything extraordinary. Okay. Yeah. I talk about my IQ sometimes, but I'm just saying I'm not extraordinary um, in the sense that that of the things that you talked about, you know, like a, a famous last name or, you know, inherited wealth or any of those kinds of things. But I did pull you up myself. You're my... not extraordinary. I can testify to that. <laughs> <laughs> you're extraordinary. You, you, you can be extraordinary in some ways. I'll say that. <laughs> An extraordinary pain in the butt. I know. But I'm just saying, you know, I, but if I can do it, so many others can, but it takes work. And we would rather blame victimhood. And I want you to give me a check for reparations because then I don't have to go out and work. I don't have to go out and do any of this stuff. You're just going to put it in my lap. And I, I dare say that some of the greatest experiences I've had or, or the greatest periods of growth have come through working and um, finding meaning in work and things that I, I love to do in educating my children, um, those kinds of things. So I, I feel like this, this, and, and Sebastian and I have talked about this a lot, this low, the soft bigotry of low expectation, how absolutely racist it is that America, that white America doesn't expect more from me. White America should expect just as much from me as it does them. And in fact, the fact that um, I have done as well as I have, that my children have overcome the, 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 uh, generational cycle that they have from their first family, my children that were adopted. Um, that's something to be celebrated. I feel like that's something that should be talked about more. Not, oh, you victim, let me give you a check because you've had it so bad. But hey, look at how you've overcome. Look where you are now and look what's ahead of you. And if you can do this and overcome all of this stuff that you've overcome, your future is bright. Here's what you can do. There's nothing stopping you. That's the message I would love to hear from white America, but I'm a victim. I'm oppressed. There's nothing I can do. And I better go to the DEI office so that, you know, I can get promoted just because I'm a black woman instead of I have a 137 IQ. See, I worked it into the conversation, <laughs> uh, you know, instead what of that, I'm, sm I'm a smart cookie. 
So, you know, that kind of stuff, that that weighs on a person, that weighs on a culture. And to Delano's point, we need to start having some of these conversations ourselves. That's why we started ACONS, to have a little corner of the universe. We could talk about these things. We need to reclaim our own story. We need to reclaim our own history. We need to start talking back about these things. And we need to hold our own leaders accountable. Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton used to be very pro-life. And now look where they are and look what they're saying and look what they're doing. I want to hold them accountable and ask them, why did you change policies? Why do you believe this now? Why aren't you telling women, your children, your grandchildren to wait for marriage, to have children within the confines of, of, of wedlock, that you you know, all of this culture that we're seeing, all of the language and all of the ways that that women are denigrated and, and treated, you know, we're, we're seeing our women being erased by the whole trans movement. And yet our culture denigrates them. So we don't honor them. We don't lift them up. We don't think that they're anything special. Maybe on Mother's Day, our own mother, not, you know, the baby mamas and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about our culture as a whole doesn't uplift women. So if that's the case, why should, like Delano said, why should a man who's been told his whole life that women are nothing? But we don't want to have these hard conversations. That's the whole message that I, I talked about with uh, Adrian. We don't want to have these whole hard conversations because then we'd have to work and we'd have to change and we'd have to do stuff when it's much easier to say, the white man's keeping me down, hand me a check. And as far as I know, there is no company that is going to say that, well, I can't hire you, you're black. I mean, that's against the law. There are offices in, in, in our government. I mean, the EEOC, you can file a complaint if you feel that someone is discriminating against you because you're black. They can't keep you out of a college. They can't keep you out of a school because you're black. So tell me what you can't do because you're a black person in this country anymore. So stop relying on the white man to do for you or to be an ally or do anything. Go ahead and make your own destiny. Build, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's no shame in that. And you know what? I'm going to tell you this. That's what Whoopi Goldberg did. That's what all those women have done on The View. So you tell me, I've never heard of Joy Behar before The View or since The View. I don't know anything that she's done other than The View. So, you know, pulling yourself up and seeking your own success is not a bad thing. Yeah, and I'll say it again. That's the message. Um parents who are from the illegal immigrant class are teaching their kids. You know, I have a, I have a good friend who came to China, came from China when she was 13 years old. I don't think she was able to speak English when she was 13. She lived in, she moved to a poor uh, neighborhood in Oakland. 10 years later, she was, she was graduating from a Ivy League law school. I have another friend who came from, I think it's Tanzania. You know, his, Talk about racial prejudice. His skin is even darker than mine, you know, and he's, he speaks with a very thick African accent. You know, not only did he become a college professor, that his two kids are now in the Ivy League colleges. You know, one kid, he's only 19 years old. He already has an off-Broadway play produced, you know, so. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. you know, these are offspring of, Parents who did not allow their children to 
make excuses about why they couldn't make it in life, you know. They, and held they, out expectations. It was never if you're going to go to college, it's when you go to college. That's the way that I was raised. We raise our kids with these expectations that you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And we shouldn't be surprised when they meet or exceed those. Not only did my daughter go to college, but she was on the dean's list every semester. This is trauma backgrounds in trauma and are making the dean's list and doing these kinds of things. And that wasn't an expectation I held out for her. I, I believed that she would go to college. I mean, she wanted to be a veterinarian. So that's kind of the trajectory, right? But I mean, I didn't expect that she, there was no, you have to make the dean's list and you have to have this GPA and you have to da, 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 da. She did that. That was an internal mechanism that she had. And that's because she was raised with that ethic. When she's at work, people talk about her work ethic. That was baked into her from a very early age. We had a very strong expectation about work ethic because I homeschooled her. It was like, you're going to turn in your assignments and you're going to complete them and you're going to do this. I, I didn't, oh, you poor baby, you come from trauma. And I mean, it's all you can do to get out of bed. Why don't you just, I mean, that's what we do when we um, empower people. And it's not empowering them at all. But this whole white fragility and the white man is is holding you down. That's in essence what we're saying. We're saying, oh, you poor pitiful thing. You don't have to do anything. We don't have any expectations of you. Just go out and be. And sometimes that's the bravest thing that you can do, you know, and that's just craziness to not expect people to rise up to their intelligence. My daughter is a brilliant, brilliant girl. Probably has more than a 137 IQ, I would say. But still, she's a very, very smart girl. And her brains have gotten her this far. Not because the white man has kept her down, not because of anything, but because she went out and sought what she wanted to do and is thinking about going back to school. It's a girl that hasn't always enjoyed school because she did have to go through a lot of trauma and difficulty dealing with her past while trying to focus and attend on what she needed to do. But she did that and she's thinking about going back to school. So, you know, don't tell me that you can't rise above it. You absolutely can. And I don't need some Karen or some Ken standing by my side, you know, you brace yourselves or whatever. No, I can do it. Don't need that. Thank you very much. Exactly. You know, one thing she didn't learn was that her, her pathway to having a happy life will come from dependency on the federal government, you know, welfare programs, EBT uh, programs and so forth, you know, and that's, that's the message that children of illegal immigrants and, and message that, the children of African-Americans are here in daily. Yep, that's absolutely so. So on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode of African-American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Please check us out at acons.substack.com and we will see you next time. So this is Marie saying farewell. This is DK saying adios. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And also you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support.